As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 20 of The Bowery Boys, The United Nations, Coming to America. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Bowery Boys is brought to you by Euro Cheapo. Euro Cheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Welcome back. It's so glad to have you back in this room again. Thank you. It's great to be back. Greg, I must compliment you on your solo podcast last week. Thanks. You know, I mean, it wasn't too bad. I mean, I think, you know, the two of us together, we, we, we'll pull it together. Were you lonely, though? Were you lonely all alone? <laughs> a little lonely talking about Sleepy Hollow? I think so. Yeah, it was a little creepy. But we're not going to, we're going a little bit brighter, a, a little bit more global. You exactly. could say. Uh, we, we yeah. ha- the Bowery Boys are going to the global stage. We're bringing the world to New York with the backstory. Of the United Nations. And we will be telling you, you know, why it came to America. Why it situated itself along the East River, where it did. And we have, at the very end of the podcast, we have breaking news about the future. I know we talk about the history, but we're going to be talking about the future of the United Nations because something traumatic is going to be very is happening to it. So And dramatic. <laughs> dramatic. And you'll find out at the end of the podcast. Yes, stay tuned. Okay, so I know everyone here listening knows what the United Nations is. Just in case there's that one soul out there who doesn't know what the United Nations is, Tom, give us a little how you do, how do you do to the United well, Nations. Maybe that one soul can just call me on my cell phone. <laughs> it might be a little easier. The number but... <laughs> is 646. No, um, well, the UN, first of all, Greg, we're talking about the building here, or we're talking about... Well, we'll be discussing mostly the building, but let's talk a little bit about the the organization. The organization, the sort of global governing council. Because we need to know, we, yes, because we then need to describe that to know why it's come to New York. Anyway. Okay, okay. So the United Nations, well, the term United Nations was first coined by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, used for the first time in his speech declaration by United Nations on January 1st, 1942, during World War II. At the time, um, the United Nations constituted the 26 nations who were fighting together against the Axis powers. Prior to this, now, if we can just jump back a little bit. In Mm -hmm. 1899, there was an international peace conference in The Hague that was meant to establish a means to settle crisis peacefully, preventing wars, creating rules for wars if they broke out. So and there this was the, some heritage here. The first first international collective in of people coming together okay, in different right. countries. Okay. Then the League of Nations, of course, was discussed during World War One, and it was formally established after the war as part of the Treaty of Versailles. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the League of Nations failed to prevent the outbreak of World War II and yes. thus was disbanded. Mm-hmm. Now, in June of '45, delegates from 50 countries met for the United Nations Conference in San Francisco. On October 24, 1945, the United Nations came into existence when the charter was ratified by China, by France, by Soviet Union, by the United Kingdom 
the USA, and the majority of other nations. But those are the five core members of the Security Council. Is that correct? Those four, those four countries? I five sure countries? hope so. <laughs> well, it was four countries, and then France, I believe, was added. China, France, Soviet Union, United Kingdom, yes. and the USA. Okay, and that was October 24th, 1945. That's right. So, Quite a day, October 24th. So that was the birth of the UN, but then right. they had to kind of decide uh, you know, where to place it. While they were de- going to decide where they were going to put it, you know, they, would, they, were st- they were meeting in the late 40s. They, would have, they had their first general assembly meeting in London. They had a couple of them in Paris. Most of the day-to-day operations, though, were held, believe it or not, I was surprised to hear this, Lake Success, New York. Um, Long Island, uh, in a vacated defense plant. That's actually where they had their first sort of like makeshift offices. But this was only, you know, temporary. Though they were there from 1946 to 1950. So they were there for quite a yeah, while. Yeah, for quite a while. I mean, they, they definitely set up shop. But while, well, How did they decide to put it in, in the U.S.? Well, there was a meeting that was held uh, in London in a building called the Church House. And that's where everyone came to make their proposals. Um, Cities from all over the world. I happen to have. I, I read an article from Time Magazine from the forties that sort of humorously summarized some of the presentations that the American cities did. And you had places like Atlantic City, you know, who did a whole song and dance. And literally, one of their selling points was that there's a famous beauty pageant in their city. You had mm. Boston, who said, "Well, you have to come to Boston because we have the best libraries." Then you had Chicago following up and saying, "Well, we have more books than Boston." And then to Trump Atlantic City, they showed videos of fan dancers on the on ice skating rinks. I mean, <laughs> people were pulling out. Well, that'll prevent the- a war. <laughs> They were pulling up the stops. I mean, Philadelphia, you know, expressed the fear that all the other cities were on the coast and that, you know, they would have fear of tidal waves and earthquakes, but Philadelphia was protected. Strangely enough, Black Hills, South Dakota, you know, where they found gold in them, their sure, hills, yeah. they had a delegation and they proclaimed that they were the only city being considered that was not in the reach of enemy atomic bombs uh-huh. and that, quote, delegates would think clearer out on the Black Hills. But, of course, none of those places were chosen. Now, in February 46, they did decide that they wanted to put it in the United States. So they had all of 1946 to consider these different cities and come to a conclusion, a decision for the location by the end of 46. Correct. Now, of course, being New York City, New York City wanted it really badly. As a matter of fact, the mayor at the time, William O'Dwyer, said he'd give an arm, a leg, and various other parts of his body, Ooh. but that none of them were particularly sellable. Um, so, but he he wanted so they wanted the UN really badly in New York City. So he put together a task force. Now, Tom, who do you think was the head of the task force? Let's see. It's New York City. It's the late forties. What name pops up in every single podcast? Could it possibly be a favorite parks commissioner of ours? Correct. Robert Moses was put in charge of a task force. The UN organization was definitely susceptible to the idea of putting it in New York, but unfortunately, having Moses was kind of steering them in the wrong direction. Moses actually donated Flushing Meadows, Queens, as a temporary spot for the General Assembly. The World's Fair had had been there, and, and that would 1939. In 1939, and he transformed this building into a place where the General Assembly could meet, and they did meet there uh, for a short time, but. 
they, they they didn't really like Queens. They thought it was a little bit too distant for their delegates. And actually, Queens didn't actually really want them. Mm. That building today actually is the Queens Museum. And when you go in, they they tell you about all about it in the tour. So, but the secret weapon in this task force wasn't Robert Moses. It was another member of the board, Nelson Rockefeller. Now, the Rockefeller family, unquestionably one of the richest families in the world by the 40s junior jd rockefeller and would own huge lots of land in manhattan rockefeller center was built from 1932 to 1940 which was his crowning achievement but i mean he built things all over the world he you know he funded the restoration of colonial williamsburg versailles in france i mean he had so much money his son nelson rockefeller uh actually on top of having you know, monetary power had lots of political power. He sat on an advisory board for Harry Truman. Later, uh, he would gain more political powers under his friend Dwight Eisenhower and be very instrumental in the talks between Eisenhower and Soviet Union's Khrushchev. Uh-huh. And of course, you know, in the 70s, he was vice president under Gerald Ford. But he really puts his arms around the idea of New York getting the United Nations. As a matter of fact, in his... Wait, so I'm sorry. We're yes. back in 1946 yes. because there's a lot going on Oh, here. right. Correct, yes. So in 46, we have the committee still trying to figure out where it's going to go in the U.S. They've Correct. decided it's going to go in the U.S. They're looking at all these different cities. Yes. You know, so Rockefeller had a single-minded campaign that he wanted this in New York City. He actually offered up which sounds strange to me, he offered up his family's estate up in Terrytown in Sleepy Hollow area to tie it back into yesterday's pod, or last week's podcast. Um, they, had an, they have an estate up there which you can visit called um, Kaikut, which is the Dutch word for lookout, but that was the Rockefeller estate. He offered. And it was large enough to um, house the their, le- the global leaders. Their est- well, the the land, their estate's enormous. Yeah, they would wow. have made it look. And if they wasn't, they would have bought. They would have bought the rest well, of the please, land. I guess. Yeah. I mean, the UN today is only on seventeen acres. So, but the council deemed, you know, obviously so, deemed that a little bit too out of the way. But Nelson had a plan B, and that's where these crucial seventeen acres of land uh, come into place on the East River. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So we have this land between First Avenue and East River Drive, between 42nd Street up to 48th Street. And 17 acres, it was owned at this time by the developer named William Zeckendorf. And we'll deal with him in a second. Correct. But at this point 
in time. It's just kind of a rundown area with slaughterhouses, with small factories, rail yards. Well, yeah, so Zeckendorf was, you know, one of New York's big real estate developers. As a matter of fact, by this time, do you know he owned the Chrysler building? I didn't know that. particular time. He actually wanted to, he was a little bit of a rival of the Rockefellers. He wanted to trump Rockefeller Center and build an even more lavish kind of quote-unquote dream city right there on the East River. Uh, and he called his plan X City, and it would basically be like Rockefeller Center, but with the marina. I mean, in your head, it sounds really awesome, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, he even hired Wallace Harrison, who was one of the architects from Rockefeller Center. He hired him to kind of like start the sketches and just and to start work on it. And this would directly compete with Rockefeller Center then for office space, for just retail, for just anything for tourists, right, everything. for icon mm-hmm. iconic status. So John D. Rockefeller buys this property from Zeckendorf. Well, well, what Nelson actually was the one that brokered the deal. J because but it's Daddy's money. Well, Nelson brokered the deal with Zeckendorf, but JD actually Jr actually went ahead and bought the land for 8.5 million dollars. JD donated that said land to the United Nations. Well, to the to, city. To the city. That then donated to the United Nations. Correct. Now, before you think that like, oh, he's this major altruistic man is is also kind of very practical because as we just said this land by giving it to the united nations meant that x city was never going to be built and that of course would have been a major competitor to rockefeller center so in a way it's he's covering his own back but also doing a, a a very philanthropic thing so all of this was a last-ditch effort by New York offered to the UN Committee in those last days of December 1946 as they were facing their deadline to choose the location mm-hmm. in the U.S. They took the offer. The city agreed to build a $1.5 million tunnel to go underneath it, which would, of course, become our FDR drive. And the city, in turn, would then turn the land over to the UN, and, be- and it would become international territory. It's literally the one part of New York that or one part of America or that you know that is international that it's it's right. every country. Well basically. this happens of course in DC too because international oh, right. embassies are always on international or normally on international land. Um, some UN laws actually override New York state laws, uh, although the UN is inside the jurisdiction of the US. Uh, but I love this idea of the international territory you know that's just like a bus ride away you can just hop on the m15 and they have their own post they have their own post office they have their own post office they can issue their own stamps they have their own firefighting squad their own security force and they actually have six official languages arabic chinese english french spanish and russian so they've decided on a spot now, what are they going to build? So they they begin, I guess, with a consortium, uh, an an international cadre, if you will. Mm, I will uh, <laughs> of uh, of architects. You know, as we talked about, like in with the public library and things, they would have competitions to see which architect would get the job. In this case, they pulled the best that the world had to offer, basically. And this was this group was headed by who the man we just mentioned, Wallace Harrison who had been hired for the ex-city job, and so now is, is overseeing this whole group of architects. May I just be the contrarian for a second here, Greg? Yes. Um, it, you said the, the best that the world had yes. to offer, and I'm looking at this list of secrets. <laughs> we have architects, top architects from Australia, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Soviet Union, Sweden, Uruguay, plus 
uh, consultants from Greece, Poland, and Yugoslavia. Um, who's missing here? Well, it seemed yeah. like there might have been some Bauhaus architects well, th- at the time. <laughs> yes. Um, Mies van der Rohe and Walter Gropius right. are probably the two best-known architects of the time of the Bauhaus movement. We're not invited to participate right. because, of course... It's the it late 40s, and they have German, yeah. yes, and they have German ties, and this was sort of a symbolic way of uniting the world, and you know, I guess a big finger to Germany, basically. Even though those, they, they literally were, were the best All architects right, we, of the time, we, and we can move on. I just want right, right, to good. <laughs> so Wallace Harrison was the director of planning, and we should also note that he was the Rockefellers. Family architect, which for <laughs> some know, reason cracks me up. Some people have know? a housekeeper. Other people just have their own personal architect. But Right. So Harrison was in charge. He put together a team, obviously, that then studied throughout 1947 lots of different designs. They actually worked in an office at Rockefeller Center, which he helped mm-hmm. design. Of course. They looked over 50 different designs, analyzing them, criticizing them. All of the designs needed to serve four major groups. They needed to have a complex that would serve delegations, uh, secretariats, visitors, and journalists. Mm -hmm. So they had to think of those four different groups, and the designs came back to them. There were 50 of them, and they chose a French architect, Le Corbusier, very well known. Right, right. Charles-Edouard Generet, I believe, was his real name. But he went by, which I love that he went by, Le Corbusier. How the UN eventually came to be is very similar to his original design, which was called the glamorous name of... Scheme 23A. Mm. Now, it's done in this... I can just picture it. (laughs) Now, they actually also chose the style and what they wanted to do as well because it needed to make a statement. And so the style of architecture would be that would be used is called the international style. It's basically, I mean, just in shorthand, an American version of the Bauhaus design, which was dominating Europe in the 20s and 30s. It was chosen because it has a fresh clean, new beginning, modern look. And to sort of like quickly summarize what international style is, it's basically everything that Art Deco and Beaux Arts are not. Mm. It's utilitarian. It's clean. It's flat. There's no flash. There's no ornamentation. It's extremely simple, and the focus is on the materials in which the, the buildings are being made. So if it's granite, it looks like granite. It's not painted and plastered upon you know, it's metal and, and stones and wood. And a lot of this today we look at and say, why, that's modern architecture. Yes. So Corbusier has a Scheme 23A, which I read his general concept was called the paper napkin design. <laughs> I like that. I like the concept of that. Is it the idea of just a... I don't know. You throw a paper napkin on the table. It's sort of... <laughs> well, it's... I guess it's a building that incorporates a balance of opposites. Mm-hmm. You know, t- you have a tall glass building and low round domes for the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. There's something low, something high. Um, Harrison and his team of architects then carried out Le Corbusier's mm-hmm. designs. Now, how did they pay for all of right. this? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was... The original design was set to cost $85 million, mm-hmm. uh, which needed to be trimmed back a little bit, and it did. They trimmed it back to $65 million by reducing the size of the central office tower six stories down to 39 The budget was approved, and then the United States actually made an interest-free loan of $65 million to the UN, 
the last installment of which was paid off in 1982. So the groundbreaking actually was in September of 1948, but the cornerstone took a whole year for them to put that. It was October 24th. Well, they had a lot to do. They had to get, you know, residents out of there, relocated, 270 people. They had to get all those factories and slaughterhouses demolished, taken away. And the symbolism of putting the cornerstone on October 24th, which was the birth date of the UN. Exactly. Makes sense. And if you look at the cornerstone being laid on October 24th of 49, workers moved into the Secretariat on August 21st, 1950. That's a pretty quick turnaround. That's like a... That's like a, like a do-it-yourself building. That's incredible. It was like less than a year. Yep. The entire UN headquarters opened to the public January 10th, 1951. Now those buildings again, I mean, I, I briefly said that they had to serve delegations, mm-hmm. secretariat, visitors, journalists. I mean, you have the, secre- the secretariat tower. That's the most prominent tower rising 550 feet. It needed to be a high-rise office tower for the secretariat that actually runs the United Nations. Uh, The 39-story building was controversial because it was so modern. Mm -hmm. The north and south walls are covered with 2,000 tons of Vermont marble. Uh, though the east and west are that clean tinted glass wall that's so pr- I like it. It's well, it's really the pretty. they refer to it as well. It's one of Manhattan's first glass curtains, as they call it. Which, of course, you go you see millions of buildings now with these walk up sheets of glass. Glass, but right. this is uh, one of the first examples of it in the city. Inside, those offices are generally small, according to the UN website. Not elaborate, no wasted space. It's starting to sound like propaganda. Um, <laughs> yeah. And think? the windows actually retain solar energy, though they do have 4,000 AC units tucked away under those. That 4,000? Yeah. I mean, not the kind that stick out from the building, but <laughs> they're would, kind of built into Yeah, yeah. That would be, that that would be really unusual. That, that might actually sort of disrupt Monsieur Corbusier's design <laughs> a little. Um, so that's that's the tall secretary. <laughs> and so, what are the other? There's the General Assembly Building, right? Right. Okay. Well, well, the the secretariat actually has four thousand nine hundred people in New York. There's seventy five hundred throughout the world. Okay. Now, the General Assembly Building is that right. sloping structure, the, the dome, odd, yeah, the odd looking, right? right. Three hundred eighty feet long, topped with a dome, a shallow dome. But of course, the most famous part is the General Assembly Hall. It accommodates 192 mm-hmm. delegations because there are 192 member states. Yeah, yeah. So one for each, yeah, one for each member country. Well, there's a delegation for each, right? Mm-hmm. They they each have their own little table, and they mm-hmm. have six people at each table. Uh, 1,300, over 1,300 seats mm-hmm. in all. Then you have a gallery on the third floor looking down for the alternates. Okay. And then there's a balcony above that for the news media and for the public. I would love to like see a concert there or something. It sounds like it might have oh, great yeah. acoustics. <laughs> Starring Ahmadinejad. Yeah, of course. And other boy bands. Um, <laughs> all the seats, this is my favorite part, all the seats are equipped with earphones, which allow the audience to listen in any of six official languages. So... And then there's also, right, there are other things in the whole complex. Those are the most well-known. There's also the Dag Hammarskjöld Library. Who, by the way, you know who Dag Hammarskjöld is? He was first secretary. Well, he was he was not not the first one, but he was his secretary general from fifty three to sixty one. He's considered to be the most successful or the best secretary general, and he died under mysterious circumstances in a plane crash in Africa. So there's uh, there's a lot of mystery, and, and there's a lot, and you should just. 
people should go online and research the conspiracy theories. They're fascinating. Then there's also UN Plaza, which incorporates other buildings there. But what is happening to the UN today? And what's happening in the future? You, oh, might, right. you we, might ask. We teased this about an hour ago. <laughs> the UN is actually, after talking about how beautiful it was and how... how how it looked it in is. 1950, yeah. they're actually going to go through a major renovation next year, a $1 billion renovation. $1 they million? $1 billion. Oh. <laughs> a billion dollar re- uh, renovation with, with a Swedish contractor uh, named Skanza AB. Apparently, uh, the headquarters are actually not up to fire codes. Mm. It's actually kind of a huge energy waster during the winter. And apparently it's... Filled with asbestos. <laughs> so, so a temporary headquarters is actually going to be built on First Avenue, just down the street, on First Avenue at 41st and 42nd. However, the renovations could take up to 10 years. Okay. So they could be there for a little while. And uh, there actually will be other places throughout the city where they'll be having like various meetings and things. So, so it might be a little hairy driving, driving around. There might be some, you know... Traffic delays. But there already are. I mean, one of the best things about it is, I mean, from the perspective of a person who doesn't drive a car in New York, one of the best things is when the General Assembly meets and the city is sort of in, well, it's a little bit of chaos. I mean, you have President Sarkozy. We had couple weeks ago, right. jogging down Fifth Avenue, we had... Of course we have Mahmoud. <laughs> of course we have Ahmadinejad all over town. But it's wonderful, and, the, and the, the wonderful experience about having the UN in New York is those people, like we come across those people living here. I mean, that's, that's an incredible thing. You, just, you see them in, in newspapers and on television, and they don't, they don't make sense. They're just names. And then you realize, wait a minute, they're just up the street. They're in town. They're in that limousine that just drove by. You they know? just jogged by. Wait, those 8,000 protesters hate that person, and he's right there. So that's what's right. really special about it's it. It's a global town hall, mm-hmm. and it's able to be visited. And before it moves, did you tell us when it's moving? It's moving in, in 2008. I'm not exactly sure of the date, but I'll put all that stuff on the, on the website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Please go visit it. We'll have the, we'll have the information on, on how to visit it and when the exact time it's going to be closing, but you can still go. Yeah, oh, and in fact... I went a couple weeks ago, and you can take a tour every 30 minutes. Uh, they have tours in 20 different languages, but English tours every 30 minutes uh, from 9.30 in the morning till 4.45. Go on the web, actually, at un.org slash tours for more information. And just be sure to, like, uh, a lot, a lot of time because there's lots of security. So thank you for joining us today as we examine the United Nations. Join us online at BoweryBoysPodcast.com for daily updates, which Greg does. Yeah, we just had two-week-long series on Roosevelt Island, which is literally right across the water from the UN, so we're tying that in a little bit. Anyway, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. (laughs) 